Hello and welcome everyone to Oki Investigations. My name is Trevor Shelby. I am an Oklahoman who loves to investigate crimes that's happened in my state and also all across the United States. I have a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and a love for true crime. The stories that are featured on this show are true stories. The narrative of each story comes from extensive research through police reports, trial notes, appeals, personal accounts, news reports, much, much more. Opinions on this show should be taken as such. For more information on each story, including timeline events, newspaper clippings, court documents, and much, much more, check us out over at truecrime.blog. And you can check us out at our Facebook page over at Oki Investigations. These stories depict violent crimes of all types and may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The story that we're about to tell is going to be one of the first uh, that we're going to cover in our main show that doesn't have really anything to do with the state of Oklahoma. Uh, We've really focused on that for our first 30 episodes. And for now on, uh, we're going to we're going to always come back to the good old state of Oklahoma here or there. But we are going to start focusing on other states as well. I really love how this show has kind of uh, changed from the sole focus of being on Oklahoma crimes to now we're kind of branching out and being a little bit more broader with our stories. We have a very large listener base um, throughout the United States. So I think it'll be fun to tell stories from just all over. I really hope you guys enjoy this story. It took a tremendous amount of research to uh, really pull out everything for this story. A lot of that research, a lot of those, a lot of the information that we gathered, if you head on over to truecrime.blog, uh, we've got this story posted along with a lot of the things that I found for this story. So yeah, if you want to dig through the newspaper clippings and the documents, feel free. It's all there. It's over at the new site, truecrime.blog. Just look for the same title, blog post. This story starts off in Mount Vernon, New York, July 20th, 1925. It's just after 2 a.m. It's been a long day for Joseph Shoemaker, who is close to ending his workday. He has spent most of his day on several trolleys, not because he likes to or anything, but it's because he works as an inspector for the Westchester Street Railway Company. He spent his day riding from station to station, collecting the weekend receipts, which totaled just over $1,800 in small bills and silver. Now, he was on his home stretch and was headed into the office in Mount Vernon, where the money would be counted, weighed, and deposited. He was at a seat in the front of the trolley so that he could talk to the driver while they were commuting from stop to stop. When they reached Mount Vernon, a skinny, pale young man boarded the trolley. Currently, besides the young man, the inspector, and the driver of the trolley, there were six other people on board. The young man sat near the middle of the trolley and eyed the two employees without them noticing. As the trolley stopped at the cross street of 6 and Durham Avenue, the young man got up from his seat and without making any noise, he approached Shoemaker, who is now standing and talking to the driver of the trolley. 
His name was Raglan Nickel. Without a warning, the young man pulls out a pistol from his pocket. He fires two shots in the back of Shoemaker. Raglan, who was still at the trolley's driver's seat, jumps from the sound of the shots and quickly looks behind him. The young man now has his pistol trained on Nichols' face. Again, without saying a single word, the young man then shoots the driver in the head. The young man turns and points the gun at the passengers of the trolley. Frank Schiegel, who was unfortunately one of those passengers, had the distinct feeling that the other passengers were never going to leave this trolley alive. But to his surprise, a Cadillac touring car quickly pulled up beside the trolley. The young man quickly heaved the heavy bag containing the weakened deposit that Shoemaker was carrying, and then he leaped from the trolley and got into the Cadillac. They then sped off at a high rate of speed, out of sight. Quickly, the passengers of the trolley did what they could to save the lives of the two wounded men. They alerted the Mount Vernon police, who quickly alerted the nearby towns to be on the lookout for what they believed to be three bandits. Mount Vernon Police Chief George G. Atwell decided that acting as quickly as possible would be the best way to catch the bandits, if they were still in town. He sounded a siren on top of the police headquarters. This alerted the surrounding public that something major was going on. Over a hundred citizens went to the police station and volunteered to help with the search around town. The chief then called in off-duty officers to report in and join in the search. They formed a ring of police around every street and exit of the city. The chief was in charge of one section. Captain Michael Silverstein, who was in the detectives bureau, in charge of another and Lieutenant Herman Matties in charge of the rest. With this many searchers, it didn't take long to find out what happened in the aftermath of the robbery. Police located the Cadillac touring car that was involved in the crime. It was sitting a mile away from the crime at the St. Paul's Churchyard, located at South Columbus and South 3rd Avenue. Apparently, the excited getaway driver turned the corner too sharply and one of the rear wheels hit the curb and destroyed the wheel. With no car, the three bandits must have left on foot. As the search continued, they found the bag in which the money was stored. The bag was located at the back of the public school number 14. The bag was open and the metal money was all that remained. Police searched the grounds from any other evidence, and they found two revolvers. Police collected this evidence in hopes that they can raise fingerprints on the weapons or the car. As daylight broke, detectives believed that there was little chance that the three could have made it out on foot, and that there was a good enough chance they were either hiding in their own residence that may be in the area, or in the woodland areas, hiding until they could see a way out. So, detectives brought in their special police dogs. They are trained to take a scent and follow it wherever it may go. 
While officers and detectives were searching with dogs, Chief Atwell and other detectives focused on the automobile. Besides the fingerprints that were being collected, they also had the license plate still on the car. Inside the car, they found a syringe and came to the conclusion that someone in the car was a drug user. It didn't take police long to find out who owned the car. A quick record search listed the owner as Edna Baltimore and Miss Marion Mooney. Miss Baltimore was 28 years old and lived in Manhattan. Quickly, the police and detectives descended on Miss Baltimore's home. There, Miss Baltimore was with a friend and co-owner of the car, Miss Mooney. The police questioned them at Miss Baltimore's home, and she didn't give them much to go on, and was calm, cool, and collected. Miss Mooney, however, seemed strangely nervous. After some discussion, detectives decided to arrest them both and bring them in for questioning. Now, according to the medical examiner Amos O'Square, police spent a considerable amount of time questioning Miss Baltimore. She refused to give much to the detectives. They found out that Baltimore was actually her maiden name. Her current last name was actually Marino, and the name of Miss Marino's husband was John Marino. The medical examiner even had a turn trying to question her, but had little to no success. He was quoted as saying, In all my experience, she's the hardest woman to question I've ever encountered. I could no trap her on a single damning admission. It didn't take long for police to hone in on John Marino. He had an active criminal record stretching back almost 20 years. When they asked the woman about the car and her husband, Miss Marino admitted that the car was not stolen. Her husband has had it for a week and that he often rented out the car. But when asked where they could find John Marino, the woman refused to answer. The police dogs following the scent seemed to follow the trail correctly from the car to the school and then into the woodland area. After a considerable search, no one was found. At this point, the police had only a few things to do to start strengthening their case. They had the car, the guns, the bag containing what was left of the money, and the fingerprints were being lifted from the car. The fingerprints were identical to John Marino's. They had his on file for when he was convicted in for burglary in 1914 in New York. John served his time for that crime in Elmira Reformatory, but finding his fingerprints was easily explained. It was his wife's car, and if he stated that it was stolen or rented out, his fingerprints might still be in that car. Police obtained John's rogue gallery photos and also showed it to the witnesses. They all stated that it looked similar to the man who did the shooting, but none of them could say for certain. 
Detectives feared that the men were trying to flee the United States by entering Canada. Some of the investigators believed that they might have already done just that by train. It was not uncommon for people to cross the border as a stowaway in a boxcar. Police and detectives would go on to search for 10 days before they had a break in the case. A tip would lead detectives Tom Martin and Steve Donahue to 149th Street and Southern Boulevard in the Bronx. There they found John Marino and his nephew, John Barlow, stepping out of a car. With guns drawn, both men gave up without incident. Since the public was eager for news, officers let the public know that the man that they were looking for had been arrested. But this had an intentional effect as over 1,500 angry citizens showed up to the police headquarters to see the arrival of Marino. Police thought it was wise to keep him in the Bronx station to keep him from being possibly attacked by an angry mob. At the station, Marino was questioned about his involvement and was accused of being the trigger man. Seeing that they believed him as the killer, he started to cut deals with the officers. He would give them information in exchange. His charges would not be as harsh. Marino stated that he was actually the driver of the car. He stated that this was his first robbery of its kind that he participated in and that there was supposed to be no killing. He named Frankie Daly as the actual killer. According to the police at the time, the two men resembled each other, so it would be understandable why the witnesses would have thought he might have been the trigger man. Marino stated that before the robbery, he and three others drove the trolley route the night before. They were driving a different car, and it was a little too small for all of them, so they decided to use Marino's car since they could fit more people in it. After the robbery and the crash moments later, Marino stated that he and Dally hid in a sewage drain culvert pipe. They waited until the next morning to split up and make a run for it. He would flee to Toledo, but he had one issue. He ran out of money quickly, but he knew that he might be able to get his hands on some more. The plan was that he was going to flee to Cuba to stay out of the reach of the federal government. In order to get those funds, he had to return to New York but he was caught before he was able to get the funds and escape. Unfortunately, since the time that they had all split up, Marino had no idea where the others went. Marino also named two other people involved in this crime. Detectives were able to use all of this new information to re-interview another suspect that had information to give. Marion Mooney was still be... Marion Mooney was still being held by the police as a material witness. They confronted her with the new information they gained from Marino about Dally. You see, the detectives found out that Miss Mooney was, in fact, his girlfriend. 
under the guise that they would do what they can to help Dally out. Detectives convinced Miss Mooney to tell what she knew about the crimes and who was involved. Much of the information that she provided seemed to match what they were told by Marino. She also gave information on how the others escaped and who helped them. With the information gained with the cooperation of Marino and Miss Mooney, police were able to locate David DeMeo, who was named the brains of the operation. DeMeo was known as a bootlegger. When detectives located him, he was driving in New Rochelle. He stopped his vehicle and officers quickly arrested him. When they searched his car, they found three cases of whiskey. At first, DeMeo denied the allegations against him, but that quickly changed when he was confronted as the actual killer. Just like Marino before him, DeMeo confessed that he was involved in the crime and that Dally was the real killer. Speaking of Dally, the very next day, officers in Connecticut were moving in on him. They received a tip that Dally was staying at a farmhouse and hiding out. Officers posted up nearby to watch the home in hopes that he would show himself. When they saw someone that looked like Dally exit the home, officers waited until nightfall and then descended on the home. They kicked in the front door and rushed in with guns drawn. Inside, they found Dally sitting on a bed smoking a cigarette, looking very alarmed. It was reported that one of the officers said, Good morning, Dally. Sorry to disturb you, but you'll have to come with us. Captain Silverstein and homicide detectives Martin and Donahue traveled to Connecticut to get Dally. They rushed him back to the Mount Vernon police station for questioning. Questioning Dally turned out to be pretty simple. As soon as they mentioned that Marino and DeMeo had ratted him out, he freaked out and said, If those guys squealed on me, I'll fix them. I ain't scared to burn, and they'll burn with me. Dally then admitted his part in the crime. He told the detectives that he was the one on the trolley. When he pulled his pistol, he ordered the driver and inspector to hand over the bag, but they didn't act. Then, he feared for his life, because he thought that they might have a weapon on them. So he decided to protect himself by shooting them. As odd as it sounds, he tried to say that it was actually self-defense. They also got some extra information that proved that he was telling the truth. He let them know that he was hiding in the sewage culvert, and he actually ditched a pistol in there. Detectives checked, and sure enough, they found the gun. For all of this trouble, Dally's take was only $35. It would have been more if they didn't have to ditch the bags, because the silver and metal money was just too heavy to try to run with. Dally was the last to be caught and the first to go on trial. The witnesses to the killings that were called to the stand all stated that Dally was the killer, without a doubt. 
a police stenographer took down all of Dally's confession and presented it to the court. They read it aloud, page after page of Dally's confession, detailing every step that was taken and what they did. When it was the defense's turn, they announced that they had no witnesses. The judge then handed the case over to the jury, who deliberated for 70 minutes. When they came out, it was obvious what the verdict was. They found Dally guilty of murder in the first degree. Miss Mooney screamed as the verdict was read aloud and fainted. Dally waived his right for a three-day grace before sentencing, and the judge condemned him to death. Forty minutes later, Dally was in the death house in Sing Sing. DeMeo was the next to go on trial. Prosecutors decided that there was no witnesses that actually saw DeMeo in the vehicle, but they had the next best thing. They called his partner and getaway driver, John Marino, to the stand. Marino was able to detail the crime and how it was DeMeo who had come up with the plan and helped them execute it. Marino actually recreated the killings for the jury so that they could see how it all happened firsthand. Marino sat on a trolley and played the role of Dally and showed how he had senselessly murdered the two men and then stated it was DeMeo who masterminded the entire thing. On the defense side of the courtroom, they did have a few outbursts. The first was when DeMeo's wife, Miss Margaret DeMeo, screamed out in court that her husband was framed and was removed from the room. The defense attorney also had an emotional outburst when he accused a spectator that was in court, Mr. Dominic Tamaro, as the real brains behind the operation. This is exactly what DeMeo repeated when he testified in court. He stated that he knew the people who were involved, but was not involved on such a level that he had been the one who had planned it at all. He stated that Dominique was the brains of the entire operation and planned the entire thing. The jury deliberated for 15 minutes and quickly returned with a verdict. He was also guilty of murder in the first degree. Three days later, the judge sentenced him to death, and he too was taken to the death house at Sing Sing. A few months later, on June 25, 1926, Frank Daly was to be put to death by the electric chair. The day before, Daly confessed that DeMeo had nothing to do with the crime. He thought that this information would save himself because this new information would need to be investigated. It didn't. Dally also had an unexpected ally in the form of Miss Nickel. She was the wife of Raglan Nickel, who Dally had murdered. She placed a call on the day of his execution to the governor, asking that his life may be spared. The governor understood her position but did not agree with it. He let her know that she did what she could, but she was not going to stop it. No one that was able to give him a stay in execution would. It was reported that when he was placed in his black death suit, he told the guards, Well, boys, I'm ready to go. 
but I want everybody to understand it was the drugs that did this to me. DeMeo fought and appealed his sentence, but lost that appeal. When reviewing the case, the governor stated that he believed that the sentence was fair. DeMeo lost all hope of escaping the electric chair. Before his execution, DeMeo proclaimed that he was innocent and said, I feel I should be allowed to live for my family's sake. The state felt otherwise. After the trials and executions, Marino was then allowed to plead guilty for his part in the murders. He was charged with first-degree manslaughter and was sentenced to five years in prison. He would, however, he would not spend a whole lot of time in jail. He contracted tuberculosis and fell ill in prison and was released early on compassion. Anyways, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, this one was a lot of fun, like I said, to uh, look up and actually do a lot of research on. These murders happened almost a hundred years ago, and it's really fun to kind of like dig up and, and find out all the information on these. This is one of those murders that's, you know, it was it was highly publicized at its time, and today. Uh, is almost never talked about. As kind of a preview for the next episode, um, I was doing research for this and I stumbled upon this other case. And that's how most of these episodes uh, come come about. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm doing research on this one. I stumble upon this other case and I go down this rabbit hole at like 2 a.m. of researching this case. And I was like, wow, this one's interesting too. <laughs> so yeah. I uh, ended up doing this double whammy of, uh, of research here. So make sure if you'd like to see some of the stuff, we've got a photo gallery up about this uh, crime. We've got um, lots of the news articles that were written about at the time, a kind of like a who and where section uh, kind of breaks down everybody that was involved in this case. I've got a uh, full case notes and blog about this story and some case files as well, uh, some of those appeals that were mentioned. Anyways, I hope to see you all next time. Make sure you subscribe. I'll see ya. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.